This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Good morning and welcome to Discovery. This week we have three podcasts for you from Seneca College journalism students. First up, Aldrin Gomez talks to a hospital nurse who's also a COVID survivor about the long-term effects she's experiencing from the virus. We now have four COVID-19 vaccines approved for use in Canada. And for spread of the coronavirus. Mutated forms of the virus. My full name is Jacqueline Powell-Laurie. I work in the hospital. I am a respiratory nurse and I was working with uh, COVID positive patients at the time. I was wearing PPE, but um, that tells you just how virulent the virus is because I was wearing the PPE and I got it anyway. It's been more than a year since the first Canadian case of coronavirus was reported on January 25th, 2020. In a year, we have managed to somewhat understand the virus and we also have vaccines rolling out worldwide. Four different vaccines are already approved by Health Canada for Canadians. But there is still a lot that, that we don't understand about the coronavirus. One of them is the long-term effects of the virus. Welcome to the first ever episode of Big Talk. Today, we'll be talking about long COVID. We had several pandemics, but what makes COVID-19 as deadly as it is? We already know the virus works like an illusionist and is wearing its own mask. It takes over our body without us even knowing about it. And it also travels to people we get in contact with. It starts off as a Lance disease and ends up affecting a lot more. And it almost felt like there were these hot spots in my lungs and it hurt to breathe. Jackie is one of the thousands of Canadians suffering from long COVID. She was infected with COVID-19 in March 2020. After I got out of quarantine, after about three and a half weeks, I was quite surprised that I continued to have symptoms. And uh, I wasn't able to work for about four months when I, uh, after I first acquired COVID. And then I went back and I was still incredibly weak and incredibly symptomatic. I looked okay, and I still do, but I'm absolutely not even close to being 70% of what I used to be. Gregory Poland, director of Mayo Vaccine Research Group, says COVID-19 is unlike other respiratory viruses. We're really seeing a number of reports of people who report long-term fatigue, headaches, vertigo, interestingly enough, difficulties with cognition, with cardiorespiratory fitness. And I I think what we're going to find out is that a large portion, not all, but a large portion of that is likely to relate to the significant cellular level damage that this virus can cause. It is still not clear why some people suffer from long COVID and others do not. To understand long COVID, first we need to understand autoimmunity. Our body produces antibodies to fight the virus. And coronavirus is powerful, so 
our immune system becomes overactive to fight it. After the virus is out of the body, our own antibodies start attacking good cells and sometimes specific tissues. This is only one of the few possibilities that can be the cause for these patients to suffer for this long. I'm 60 years old, almost 61, and I've always been very fit, very capable, able to shake just about anything. And I try to take it one day at a time without getting too frustrated. But um, I must admit, there are days where I just think, this needs to end and it needs to end soon. She has been suffering from chest pain and fatigue for almost a year and is yet to go back to work full time. Evidences of myocardial uh, damage, cardiomyopathy, arrhythmias, uh, decreased uh, uh, ejection fractions, um, uh, pulmonary scarring and fibrosis, and then uh, in the more acute phase, extending out for a month or two has been this really interesting issue of coagulation abnormalities, which have been responsible for both small vessel and large vessel arterial and venous uh, uh, occlusion. So this, this can be a really wicked virus in some people. We're gonna see more and more of the longer term consequences come out. an ongoing learning process with this. It came upon us very suddenly a year ago, and we're at our anniversary, of course, of its prevalence here in Canada. So it came upon us really suddenly. I'm not sure we were ready for it. I'm not sure even now we understand the full gravity of the situation. So um, that's, that's a difficult one to answer because being so such a multi-organ illness, the, the learning curve is quite huge. And I think we're only just beginning to learn a little bit more about it. Jackie was vaccinated recently. I think I got my first one around the beginning of January and my second one uh, around mid-February. It was about five weeks in between my shots. I don't believe that the vaccine is the answer for us. And that's not entirely what the vaccine is for. The vaccine is here to prevent reinfection or infection if we are exposed to the virus. It's not to help with our residual symptoms because I believe, and I could be wrong, I believe that the residual symptoms are damaged from the initial infection. Again, one possibility is the antibody killing its teammates. Uh, second, the immune system's lack of response, and you can also relapse or get reinfected, there's PTS, and so on. I do think we need some kind of rehabilitation program set up for us. And because it's of long duration, I think many people with B 
being so discouraged at the outcomes here, I think many people need some emotional support as well. I absolutely think there is a post-traumatic stress element from this illness of long duration. So we have shortage of clinics in Canada. There are only six, just two in Ontario. In our next episode, we are going to talk to Susie Golding, founder of COVID Long Haulers Group Canada. Until then, stay happy and stay safe. You have been listening to Big Talk with Aldrin Gomez. Next up, Arif Ahmed talks about the real estate market in Toronto and what needs to be done to cool it down. The housing market is skyrocketing. There are no prediction it will slow down. It is getting untouchable for many first-time buyers. I talked one of the housing specialists. My name is Hasni Mubarak, working with Century 21 Titans. Did you predict that the market will go that high? As of now, it's uh, crazy. Nobody could predict. Even in the last year when the COVID started at the beginning of March, April, nobody thought that it's going to be like that. Interest rate is very, very low. A lot of people took advantage. Up until the month of September, October, it was normal, regular market. Mm-hmm. People were buying, you know, with regular price, let's say Bangalore for 750, 800. But right after October, when the crisis starts, the inventory went low, more people came into the market. The mortgage rate is really low, let's get into the market. At the same time, it was way less inventory. Let's say a bungalow was selling for 800 at that time. The same bungalow was selling for million dollar, almost like $200,000 more in the month of January and February. Why do you think prices jumped that high? Because people's affordability went way high. Before, when the interest rate was like 3.5 or 3.25, while to afford a $700 house, you would need at least $3,800 or $4,000 a month just for the house, mortgage, plus utility, plus property tax, plus insurance. But nowadays, since the interest went very low, like 1.7, 1.8, same house, you, could, you, you have to pay maybe $3,000, almost like $1,000 less last year of September. So they, that, that's how they thought, okay, I'm paying uh, 2,500 or 2,200 with two kids mm-hmm. in an apartment, in a three bedroom apartment. Why not I buy something? And they always uh, try to rent the basement as well so that they can get $1,000 or something from the, let's say the, the total expense is 3,300, mm-hmm. $1,000, which they, all they need is 2,300. A lot of the families who were making, let's say husband, wife working, part-time, one part-time, one full-time was making like, let's say, barely 3,500. Nowadays, while the government is helping them, they got even more money. So they are yeah, yeah, that's on that, you know? If somebody wants to buy a house, uh, $1 million, okay. what do you think how much they need in comfort? To get every $100,000 mortgage from the bank, you need about, let's say, $22,000 income per year. So let's say if you need a $1 million mortgage from the bank, 
you need $220,000 combined, which is pretty big, you know, as far as my calculation. And uh, <laughs> I don't know how many Canadians make $220,000. Yeah, that's my next question come to you. What's the average price of the house right now? Nowadays, even if you come to Scarborough Dust House, it's going to cost you at least in between $900 to $1 million. Doesn't matter what shape, doesn't matter what's the position. Can you talk about the first-time buyers? First-time yeah. buyer, pretty much out of the market in the city of Toronto. But I heard that uh, about 88,000 people moved out from the city of Toronto to outskirts of the GTA, let's say, on those cities like Kitchener, Waterloo, Hamilton, Cambridge, and uh, on the east, like up to Beaumontville, Newcastle as well. If any house come to the market at this moment for $800,000, how much do you think it will go up compared to last year? As of now, if you put a house yes. in the city of Toronto for 800,000 and it's a decent house, I can tell you they're gonna receive at least 13 to 15 offers minimum. One year ago, one offer or two offers, 800 house is gonna end up selling maybe a million dollars or something like that, $200,000 over asking or something. So the main struggle in having right now is a first-time buyer. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're out of the scene in the city of Toronto. If they're doing some regular jobs, let's say husband and wife mix together ninety to hundred thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars, they're out of the scene. They can't buy anything as of now. The government must be worried too if a bungalow is selling for one point one million. And I saw the house; it was listed for uh, somewhere maybe seven, eight, nine, or eight hundred around that range. That house sold for 1.1 million. It's an old house, at least 50 years old. Where do you go with this? These type of things keep happening. I would be worried too. What's the thing? Government should start to raise the interest rate to cool down the housing market. They should, they should start raising the interest rate for sure. People think before they do. Second thing is our real estate board and everybody should come up to a solution to stop this bidding war, you know, in this, for this bidding war, maybe the seller getting a lot of benefits, but the buyer is losing out, you know. I'm your host, Arif Ahmed, with the producer, Mohit Latour. This is the Survivor Podcast. If you'd like to hear more of our podcast, go to SenecaJournalism.ca. Next up, Jermaine Ma and Gabriel Hutchcraft with the Afternoon Show in the Morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of the afternoon show. So we're here for you, whether you're just getting your day started or you want something to put on in the middle of the day. I'm Jermaine Ma. And I'm Gabriel Hutchcraft, and we're going to be your hosts for the show. Gabe, we learned pretty much out of nowhere that HuffPost Canada announced they're closing down. Um, this came in the middle of the workday and caught a lot of the staff off guard. So all Canadian operations are closing down. That means HuffPost Canada and HuffPost Quebec and 23 employees are being laid off. So HuffPost Canada is no longer publishing content, but they are keeping existing content online as an archive. Now HuffPost is owned by BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed bought the company late last year. The site also said workers were laid off in the US and in a statement, BuzzFeed said it was part of a restructuring plan to stave off financial losses and streamline. The HuffPost union in the US criticized the layoffs, saying the journalists never got a chance to prove themselves to the new owners 
And HuffPost Canada had recently filed for certification, but stressed the layoffs were not related to that. But also being criticized is the suddenness of it all. The website was completely shut down just an hour after staff were suddenly informed of the layoffs. Yeah, so Gabe, you and I are journalism students. What was your reaction to this? Um, it's kind of disheartening, uh, more so as a student than as a consumer. I never really went to Post Canada for news, but it is kind of uh, nervous. It makes me a bit nervous to see so many experienced journalists get laid off, especially um, now that they you think they might be more competition and they might be more experienced. Um, but this is also because this isn't the first time we've heard of these kind of mass layoffs in the news industry recently. Uh, Bell laid off 200 workers and shut down several radio stations in February, very suddenly and without much notice. And there was global news earlier in the year during the summer, which also laid off a large unidentified amount of workers, especially in the digital and streaming part of the business. It's scary as a consumer, too, because it's like we're getting our news from even fewer sources and the media industry in Canada is already so concentrated. It's primarily the vast majority is owned by national corporations. So that's kind of like, how does that affect what is considered news and how these stories are told? So that's worrying. And it's also worrying while we're in a pandemic right now and reliable, timely information is so important. Um, I was reading an article on the University of Toronto Mississauga news page um, by a woman named Patricia Lonergan. She's the editor of that page, I believe. That article was written almost a year ago, but right now it's still relevant. It talks about how the COVID-19 pandemic exposes problems in the news industry. And so the news industry is built on a for-profit model, which is problematic. And that's been especially apparent now because tons of companies are closing their doors because of the financial hardship. And news industry makes money primarily from advertising. So the money is going to places like Google and Facebook instead, which aren't producers of news and journalists uh, get laid off. And it's not just in Canada, it's happening in the U.S. too. A research institute called the Pointer Institute did a um, listed throughout 2020, the long list of news organizations that have had layoff furloughs or even just completely folded at some point during the year related to COVID or not. And it's throughout every state and there's a lot of them and it's sort of the similar story. A lot of it was very sudden, a lot of it lost advertisement revenues, trying to streamline the new business and it just seems like it's, there's becoming a smaller and smaller amount of news organization as time goes on. We're not sure if they're evolving in some way or they're just completely shutting down. Yeah, I watched this YouTuber. Um, she's a reporter for Local 12, I think based out of Cincinnati. She talks about uh, layoffs at her news outlet, too. And she was saying that there were very experienced, really good journalists who were being laid off that. It's really just people in offices, like looking at a listing who makes the most money and then seeing where they can cut costs. So, I mean, that sucks that that our news industry, while it does a public good, is really like dollars and cents. And someone else in the same shoes as us, Patricia Mohammed, we talked to this student and mom of three to find out how she's hoping to make it work. So we were really excited to talk to you because there's a lot out there about students and COVID and how they're adjusting and parents too, but you're both, which <laughs> is a pretty unique situation because you don't hear a lot about it. Um, so could you just kind of update us on your background in terms of like how many kids you have, what you've been doing in school, like what's your life like right now? So I am a fourth semester journalism student. I am 
home with three kids who are doing online school. And of course, our school has been brought online too. So it's a little chaotic in here. You know, I've come from the workforce into this and it's kind of not how I pictured it playing out, but you know, COVID has its own plan. So here we are just trying to make do hard because you know like pre-COVID everybody had their time and their space the kids went to school I went to school I had my time to do my thing before they got home and there was a lot more balance in there but now with everybody being home all of those lines are kind of crossed and blurred now so you know you're, you're making lunch while carrying your laptop around listening to your prof give you a lesson while you're trying to take notes and make a sandwich what's something that's surprising that you know, you never thought would be taking place or something you've learned from juggling all of this at once? I've learned how resilient I am. Like there's me who's like, you know, falling apart at the beginning of last year when school started and I've come a long way. And I can say like, you know, now I've really gone into my groove and we've kind of figured out how the house is going to flow and what needs to be done. And I'm a lot calmer and I cry a lot less than... I did in September. Um, so I think for me, like just really learning how to adapt and how I've had to adapt, I'm actually quite surprised at myself. All right, um, let's sort of uh, change gears a bit here. Um, since you'll be graduating soon at the end of April, how do you feel about moving from going from journalism in school to trying to go out into the industry, especially during this time and hearing about things like layoffs and all that going in the, around in the news? Yeah, so when I heard about Bell's um, massive layoff a couple of weeks ago, a month ago now, that was pretty scary for me because I'm like, here we all are, me and my peeps, we're about to graduate. And you see on the news that, you know, there's been more than 200 job cuts. And that's really scary because you're like, you just busted your tail for the last two years and you're ready to go out and, and start this new career in this new wonderful dream world. and you really start to wonder what's actually going to be available for you. And you start to question your career choice and if you made the right move at the right time. And that's a little scary to me. And it's also scary to me when, you know, you hear your profs talking about, you know, you might have to move out West. With all the advice out there being for, I yeah. guess, like younger people, people just graduating high school, even people just graduating university, but you're in a totally different situation. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel, I feel kind of lost in it because it's, I feel like it's, e it'll be easier for some of my peers to just be like, oh, there's a job in Edmonton. Off I go, you know, where I'm like, there's a job in Edmonton. And I feel like I would have to debate it for so long and there's so many more factors that I'd have to take into consideration and and I'd probably have to like pass up what could be like a dream opportunity just because I can't easily just uproot and leave just gotta see what happens now for a watch out segment when we discuss something we've been watching this week and maybe recommend it to you yeah, and there's going to be something for everyone because Gabe and I are pretty different. In case you haven't noticed, we have pretty different tastes, different personalities. Personalities, so you're really getting a vast array of recommendations. So, Gabe, what did you watch this week? Uh, something I watch fairly regularly: Agatha Christie's Poirot on PBS. I've never watched PBS before. 
Oh, yeah, it's a bit of an older show, aired 1989 to 2013 in ITV in Britain, starring David Suchet as Hercule Poirot, this eccentric Belgian detective who solves mysteries in England during the 1930s and 40s with his, uh, his uh, sort of sidekick I uh, call Captain Hastings. Um, it's based off the Agatha Christie novels and short stories, which I'm also a big sort of fan of, so I really sort of get into this show, and they're very complex mysteries, a lot of the kind of very dramatic kind. Okay, so I gather it's like a detective thing, kind of like Sherlock Holmes? Uh, kind of like Sherlock Holmes, if Sherlock Holmes was a sort of short Belgian person and much, much more eccentric. Short Belgian person, okay. <laughs> and, so is there anything you haven't seen that you're looking forward to watching? Uh, well, coming out this week is this uh, new Justice League movie, the sort of, I guess, restored version of the original theatrical release in 2017 that has a whole bunch of new footage. So it's it's going to be kind of, it's four hours long, but I'm still kind of excited to see it because a lot of characters I've read before and seen, but never actually had live action versions like Dark Side. So that might be cool. So what have you been watching this week? Um... Ugly Betty. So Disney Plus launched Star in Canada a few weeks ago. So if you don't have Disney Plus, um, Star is kind of this extra tab you can click. It's an entertainment hub for more Hollywood type of stuff, more grown up shows and movies. So Ugly Betty is something that's really nostalgic for me. I remember watching it um, when I was growing up kind of after school. It originally aired from 2006 to 2010 on City TV in Canada. So it's a comedy drama series about a young woman who gets a job at a prestigious fashion magazine despite her lack of style. So this young woman is named Betty. Um, she has a stereotypical kind of 2000s unattractive look, you know, big hair, glasses, braces. Um, she gets hired by her boss's father uh, to get his son to not sleep with his assistant, hence ugly Betty. Um, it's based on a Colombian soap opera. It's funny. The characters are likable. It's heartwarming. It was pretty progressive for its time, and it had a huge cultural impact in terms of Hispanic representation, body imaging for women, and LGBTQ issues. The characters are really likable. It's, like, heartwarming <laughs> for comedy. Um, and something that I'm looking forward to watching is uh, a Netflix documentary. It's called Operation Varsity Blues, the College Admission Scandal. So it's a documentary about the FBI investigation into the mastermind behind the scam to get kids of rich and famous people into top U.S. universities. So um, if you're familiar with the whole Laurie Loughran thing, that's what this is going to be about. Lots of reenactments of what happened. Mm, that actually does sound pretty interesting. But now from the things we've watched to something you might not be able to believe. <laughs> An Ontario gym owner has really taken burpees to the extreme. Nick Anapolsky, owner of a Kitchener CrossFit gym, did 879 of them in the span of an hour. That's a Guinness World Record and nine more than the previous world records. So we thought it would be fun to see how many we could do in a minute and maybe we could extrapolate that to an hour because neither of us would actually last the actual hour. No, and it was definitely not fun. It was a lot harder than I thought it would be and likely a lot harder than it looks. It's like you do one and you're like, oh, it's easy. I can definitely get through a minute, no problem. But that's where you make your mistake because um, the first take I did, I tried to do it as fast as I could, big mistake. But um, to do a burpee properly is actually a combination of a push-up, a squat, and a jump all in one fluid motion. I'm curious, Gabe, how did you hold up? 
Well, the motions weren't very fluid, I'll admit that, so not quite great. I did the version Anapolsky did, which he lied down instead of doing a push-up. I don't know if that's easier or not, but after a minute, it got pretty tiring. And since I don't think that I did them pretty well, I'm pretty certain I'm not going to break any world records. Um, I think I did 21 in a minute. Um, I kind of died like halfway through, so they became like, like my legs weren't working, I couldn't jump. So bad idea. The second time I tried to pace myself, which I think is really the key with burpees, pace yourself. I think Anapolsky did 15 per minute. Yeah, he did 15 in per minute and did a rest of 10 to 15 seconds at the end of each minute. So he had endurance going, which seemed to be what lasted him the hour instead of speed. I got about 12 somewhat questionable burpees done during that hour. So <laughs> even if I were to last that hour with that endurance, they wouldn't have broken any records. But they were pretty hard. And he did say the last few minutes of that hour were pretty tough to get through. I feel like if I had to do it for an hour, I would do like a minute and then take a five minute rest. And that's how my hour would go to be able to make it through. Um, but yeah, um, endurance, uh, cardio, if you can stick through it, it's great for your heart, it's great for your health. So this brings us to the end of our very first episode of the afternoon show, but we'll be back for more. Stay tuned next week for a surprise guest and to see what kind of stuff we'll be trying next. Bye everybody. Bye. That's our show for this week. If you're interested in learning more about the broadcast journalism program, go to SenecaCollege.ca. Thanks for listening. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.